Welcome to That's Illegal, a podcast about international law in the age of nationalism. This podcast is produced by the Global Justice Center, or GJC. The Global Justice Center is a legal human rights nonprofit based in New York City. Our work focuses on moving international humanitarian laws from paper to practice. Our staff consists of lawyers with international law expertise who work regularly with partners at the EU and the UN. Given the recent development of countries turning increasingly nationalistic and the rise in global tensions, we thought it would be a good idea to sit down and talk about the importance of international law, why we have it, and why we should implement it. So every week we're going to take a look at the latest news and break down the legality of what happened using the framework of international law. This is part two of our two-part series on the genocide ISIS is committing against the Yazidi. We are speaking with Sarita Ashraf, an internationally recognized lawyer and expert in the field. This week we'll be discussing justice and accountability. So do you want to begin with Rwandan successful prosecutions of rapist genocide? When you speak about successful prosecutions of rapist and acts of genocide, mm-hmm. you will always start with the Akeusu case, because it, the Akeusu case is the case which determined rape could be a genocidal act. There was a certain amount of concern, I think, in some of the writings that followed Akeusu that you were looking at women as a vessel for an attack against the group, since a genocide is an attack against a group rather than an individual, even in the definition of the crime. But the Akeusu judgment's wording, I think, was very delicately and very thoughtfully done. And it spoke about sexual violence being an integral part of the destruction both of the individual and of the group, not necessarily prioritizing the group over the individual. So just to put the Akeusu judgment in context, mm-hmm. in April of 1994, President Habermas Payne went down as he was turning from Tanzania back into Rwanda. And this was an event which kicked off the Rwandan genocide, although it's very well documented that the planning for the genocide extended far beyond the plane crash and that immediately the plane crash happened. Checkpoints were being set up. People had lists of people that they wanted to kill. People were being extorted to cut down the tall grass, which was the code for killing Tutsis by Hutus, and there had been a process of indoctrination of the society to accept this level of killing. Because societies are not naturally often genocidal, you need to inculcate within the community that this is something that they need to do for the betterment of the community, that these people are a problem in the community and everything will be better once they're gone. And so in Rwanda, it was the world's fastest episode of mass killing. They kill people at a faster rate than the Holocaust, with about a million being killed in a hundred days. Aside from that, it was also, rape was ubiquitous in Rwanda. They said it was not an acceptable it was the rule, I think was what one of the rapporteurs said. And in the aftermath of the genocide, you had a situation where you had a country of women showing that it was men and boys who were disproportionately targeted for killings and yeah, shattered lives. The Rwanda Human Rights Watch, Rwanda's 1996 report said, yeah, Rwanda is now a country of women. The number of men being killed so drastically affecting the sex ratio of the country that there were 69% of the people who survived were women at the time. Of those women, a large extent, a large number of them actually had suffered rapes and many of them had now contracted various sexually transmitted diseases, including HIV. And so the killing of the Rwandan genocide as a result of rapes actually continued for years and years after the genocide had ended. Tissi women and girls had really been targeted for rape by the inter way and, and proponents of the Hutu power. And that's not really surprising because in the Hutu power ideology, Tutsi women were seen as very duplicitous, but also very beautiful and very charming. So there had been a whole mythology that had developed around 
the role of Tutsi women as being kind of charming but very deceptive and, and also very arrogant because they were also so beautiful. So there was a real element of striking back at the Tutsi women in particular, of belittling them, of taking them down to size. And then you had mass rapes in the Rwandan genocide. Some of those rapes also then being followed by killing. So it became really integral to the prosecution of the conflict, not just to sideline rapes as crimes against humanity, which they clearly were, or as war crimes, which they also were, but to say, how does this sexual violence fit within the continuum of genocidal violence? How is genocide being perpetrated in ways that don't involve killing? Rather than saying, let's focus on killings, which disproportionately affect men and boys, and sexual violence, which disproportionately affects women and girls, we'll hive off and say, this is its own thing. And the Akesu judgment is really the first look at it to say, let's understand how this genocide has been perpetrated. And let's not just focus on the killings and really explore what happened in this genocide and how it was being committed. And part of that was receiving a lot of evidence about rape and other forms of sexual violence, horrific rapes and mutilations and sexual torture and looking at how this fits into genocide. And the way that they did this was predominantly through the second limb of the prohibited acts, which is causing serious bodily and mental harm. And what the trial chamber, and then as confirmed by the appeals chamber, found in Akeisu was that rape and other forms of sexual violence form part of causing serious bodily and mental harm to women, to the victims. And of course, you can extend from that. The trauma of rape means that it prevents births from within the group and so on. But predominantly, it's through serious bodily and mental harm. Now, I think a lot is made in Akeisu, but actually, if you look at the continuous continuing jurisprudence of the ICTR after Akeisu, it was never as progressive as Akeisu. So if you look at the Nira Masuko case, you have a situation where the chamber is going, look, you know, we have a lot of information about rapes here. We have ordering of rapes here, but the prosecution hasn't pled it as genocide. The prosecution has chosen to plead it as crimes against humanity. And so although actually we'll explore it, and you can see in the judgment that they would likely have found it to be a genocidal act, it was never indicted on that basis. And so it couldn't form. And they said, because of the way it is indicted, we cannot consider it as part of the crime of genocide. So while a lot of made in Akeisu, the problems of actually really recognizing rape and sexual violence as being genocidal acts continue to this day. And you see it now with how the reporting on the Yazidis has been done. If you look at most of the reporting on the Yazidis, you have a tremendous number of news articles about rape and sexual violence and sexual enslavement in a way that I think is a little bit actually disturbing, this focus on sexual enslavement. But they very focus as a crime just by itself, which it is. I mean, it's clearly a crime by itself. It deserves to be recognized as being a crime by itself. But there's no attempt to look at how how women and girls are treated during a genocidal campaign as being part of the genocidal campaign. And that's something that continues now and it continues to be brought up again and again. So although Akesu is always cited, if you read any articles, which you may or may not do, on rape as an act of genocide, there's a lot of discussion of genocide and Akesu and they're referring to it as a landmark case. But it hasn't really taken root in jurisprudence in the way that you'd expect, given the amount of times it's cited and referred to in by jurists. Mm -hmm. Since Rwanda, we've also had limited prosecution of genocide. So we've had an ongoing or a genocide in Sudan for quite a period of time. We've had arrest warrants, but there haven't really been any prosecutions for what's happened there. Bashir is still out on an arrest warrant, traveling around the world, meeting with world leaders with complete impunity. So in terms of carrying it forward, there was also some limited consideration at the tribunal for Yugoslavia. But even then, a lot of it focused actually on the acts that were related to what happened to the men and the boys with the transfer and the killing of the men and the boys. So again, there was a gendered way in which the genocide was carried out, but there really hasn't been a lot of tests. 
of what Akiyasu put out there. And I think a lot of that is in a way of prosecution decisions, right? I mean, they could choose. It's not an either or. You can prosecute rape as a genocidal act as, as part of forming part of your case on genocide, as well as it being a crime against humanity and war crime, which is in fact what happened in Akiyasu, but wasn't followed in Yiramasuko. But similarly, like in the Balkans, they really didn't attempt to try and put sexual violence in the framework of genocide. And because you can't go behind the prosecutor's discussion, it's not really clear whether they thought, oh, we're not going to make it, we're not going to get to the intent, this case is weak, or if it's just a prosecutor decision that crimes against humanity and war crimes were sufficient, even though there were large-scale rapes going on. But where you have killings of men and boys, large-scale killings of men and boys in a context where it's one group attacking another group, there doesn't seem to be that lack of clarity when it comes to charging. There's not such a kind of breaking when it comes to charging genocide when it comes to killings. And I would also say on that, Sarita mentioned how Obama in August, when they did the initial airstrikes on Sundar Mountain, mentioned prevention of genocide. In March of 2015, John Kerry recognized genocide. However, there are plenty of advocates, there's plenty of human rights scholars who've talked about what's happening to the Yazidi in terms of genocide, but officially not a lot of people have talked about it as genocide. And one thing that I think really ties into the gender component is those who are being subject to the ongoing crimes are still women. Yeah. And I think there is very much a dimension of failing to recognize the non-killing crimes, oftentimes the ones that are carried out against women, as genocide because mm -hmm. of this focus on mass killing. And so it's not only in justice and accountability where yep. we see this problem, we also mm -hmm. see it in terms of recognition because there are very strong legal obligations that attach to a recognition of genocide. So when you know a serious risk of genocide is going on, everybody in the world, not just Iraq or Syria in this case because it's happening on their territory, but everybody in the world has legal obligations to do something about it. And what we have right now is an ongoing genocide where the primary victims continue to be women and girls and we just have no action. So that was my next question, was what is the international community doing about this genocide and what are they not doing? President Obama's statement on the 4th of August, basically, is the only statement that we found that says we are taking this particular action because of risk of genocide. And that action was limited very much to the airstrikes around Sinjar region, which, to be fair, saved tens of thousands of lives. But they did nothing to save the Yazidis who were on the ground, who didn't get to the mountains, who didn't get to Duhok, who were captured by ISIS and held by ISIS in various locations and are now still circulating. In case of Yazidis, it's estimated that over 3,000 women and children are still being sold, bought and sold in ISIS-controlled territory today. So in relation to action to prevent that happening, nothing really nothing. is happening. There was a period of upset in the Yazidi community beyond the now quite high level of general distress, of course, which there is, where a young Swedish girl decided that she would follow her boyfriend who had gone off to join ISIS in Mosul. And she decided, you know, I really love this boy. I'm moving to Mosul. And uh, moved to Mosul and realized this was really not for her. Her, that this was not a good place to be and then the American it wasn't what she expected it wasn't what you she know, expected living in ISIS right. control wasn't what she expected yeah it wasn't um, he wasn't as charming as he had been in Sweden and the Americans went in and rescued her and it caused a lot of consternation and distress amongst the Yazidi community who had thousands of women and girls who had been captured and taken off into ISIS controlled territory who were being raped on a daily basis who were being beaten whose children were being taken away from them and nothing was being done and to this day there have been no rescues the only rescues that there have been have been really through actions of the Yazidi community through smuggling networks or trying to get these women out so you have a situation where you have Yazidis who are not getting any help when it comes to rescue or retrieving women trying to do as much as they can with this by 
selling property, by taking enormous risks to try and bring people back. What the international community has really done is two things, predominantly. The first is funding a lot of support services within the community. Not enough, but certainly there's psychosocial support, skills training, and so on. Germany, I think, has been particularly notable in its support and rehabilitation of Yazidi women, including through a trauma program which brought Yazidi women and children into southern Germany, not as refugees, provided them with papers and set them on long-term therapy. This is a very small number of women, but still a tremendous thing for this country to have done. And there are programs on the ground as well. The second thing that you're seeing is the funding of documentation organizations doing a lot of documentation. And that has been, I think, my personal opinion is that it's been a mixed bag. And that what we have here is the fact that there has been no referral to justice for the Yazidis. There is no referral to the International Criminal Court because you can't refer just ISIS and you can't refer just the Yazidi victims. You have to refer the situation in Syria and Iraq. And that has not got through the Security Council. There's only been one attempt to refer the situation in Syria and that was already vetoed. By... Can you just explain a little why that is? Why you would have to refer Iraq, the situation as a whole, not just... It's just the, under the Rome Statute. You can't hive off certain groups that you think it's alright. You couldn't say, like, we are going to refer only crimes by ISIS to the Security Council. We're only going to refer crimes against the Yazidis to the ICC. You have to refer the entirety of the crimes committed in the country and the prosecutor will then make decisions about how she would like to indict and what cases she's going to follow up within that situation. And, and this is important because Iraqi security forces and the Peshmerga have been involved in the commission of crimes as they conduct their own offenses against ISIS and in these regions. And so there's a real fear of the Iraqi government that any sort of referral would also open them up to accountability. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's really the political reason why Iraq, in, this, in the context of Iraq and Syria, it's actually slightly different. In terms of Iraq, it's a lot of the members of the Security Council have strong ties to Iraq. And Iraq has expressed a serious desire not to be referred because could open them up to accountability. On the Syrian side, it's been and Russia. And open the Americans up to accountability. Well, yes. Yeah, and on the Syrian side, you have, for example, Russia, who initially was very strongly in support of Assad, but it's also now being complicated by the fact there are Russian planes over in the Syrian skies. So the fact that the wars have involved so many multiplicity of actors, both national and international, has meant that there are much more obstacles to referral to justice through the Security Council. Similarly, there have been discussions about setting up an ad hoc tribunal similar to the ICT and ICTR and it's quite interesting how international justice works like everyone's very gung-ho on these ad hoc tribunals in the 90s and then it turned out they were horrifically expensive and quite wasteful and so there was a movement away from ad hoc tribunals into the hybrid tribunals such as Special Court for Sierra Leone or you know the ECCC and now we're starting back to discuss where we're not having a path to justice through I see how can we get it well we just want to look at perhaps having something for ISIS which is tremendously difficult in itself but although you can understand why the Yazidis might support it it's very difficult to say like all other victims you won't have justice, but if you're a victim of ISIS, you will have justice. I think it's unhelpful on many levels, including in terms of messaging on accountability. And, and because a lot of what's been happening predates the mm. conflict with ISIS. Yeah. You know, the treatment of the Yazidi is not something that ISIS came up with. The Yazidis have been persecuted in that region, in Iraq, for a very long time. And so there is already a lot of distrust of Iraqi forces. There's already been atrocities that have been committed against them. There's been atrocities committed against other minority populations yeah. in the region as well, both by Iraqi forces, by Kurdish forces, and by ISIS. And yeah. so in order to move forward from the conflict, 
it can't just be about ISIS, who everybody hates and can agree on, should maybe be prosecuted. But if the idea of justice is also to help the community come back together and heal, you also have to ensure that you address some of the underlying and root causes that predated conflict in the first place. Yeah. We're talking about documentation. Mm-hmm. I was just saying, the states are funding a lot of documentation. But in fact, I feel like that time documentation should be being done by a group like the ICC. It shouldn't just be that the international community doesn't really know what it can do or what it's able to do, what it's willing to do. And therefore, we're going to devolve some of those responsibilities to groups which we will fund. And that's kind of understandable, given the constraints, but I don't think it's ultimately actually going to be as helpful as people hope it will be. Especially because it's legal evidence, and legal evidence has to be collected in a certain way. There has to be certain rules around chain of custody, how the questions are asked, how it's preserved. So in terms of being able to use it later in a court of law, you need to make sure that any documentation that's being done is not just being done for the purposes of writing a report, which is helpful in terms of exposing atrocities, but not necessarily useful in the context of justice. So what we have now really is the Yazidis are a community that have suffered tremendously, who have really fought to maintain their sense of cohesion and to protect their existence by, for example, having a tremendous emphasis on the acceptance of the women who've been sexually enslaved coming back, which is quite difficult for a society which is so based on notions of honour centering around control of female sexuality. But you have the Yazidi religious authorities saying this is not the woman's fault. They were attacked because of, they were Yazidis. They were not attacked because of anything that they did. They should be embraced and you know they have a ceremony for the women once who are returned. So that has been quite impressive. But I think a lot of responsibility has been placed on the Yazidi community to take care of their own, to set up and then run projects for psychosocial support, to do documentation, to constantly go out and speak every day, every chance that they get about what is happening to them. And you see that in the case of Nadia Murad, Mm -hmm. who's a very impressive young woman. She was in her late teens when she was taken. She was enslaved. She managed to escape with the help of a Muslim family into the Duhok region and has now become a spokesperson. She is the face and voice of the Yazidi genocide. But she's going out every day to universities, to the UN, to conferences, to meet foreign ministers where she has to explain, you know, how she and other Yazidi women have been raped and sold and beaten and had both her mother and her father were killed, her brothers were killed. I think it's a lot to expect people to continually do this in the face of complete international inaction, although a lot of expressions of sympathy and willingness to help and willingness where possible to donate funds to various projects inside the whole region. It's just not not sufficient. And I think it's also relevant when we talk about, well, since we're talking about gender, the one thing I think it is important to note is that the understanding of the Yazidi genocide comes predominantly from women. And that is because they are the living victims of the genocide. And so they have taken up a really strong position in our understanding of, of the genocide. Uh, when you think about genocide, if you've read about it, you'll have really heard accounts mainly from women. One thing is that most of these women have lost the majority of their male relatives. One of the women I interviewed was in her early 20s. She came from a rural village in Sinjar. She had left school probably in her early teens, got married by the time she was 16, had two children. 22 members of her male relatives were missing. Most of them we knew were dead. The rest probably presumed dead, but are currently referred to as missing. The question of how these women are going to support themselves when they have not grown up in a culture and with the skills to encourage and to maintain any sense of independence is a real question for the world. I mean, for the Yazidi community, yes, certainly, but for the world in general. What happens when you have a community which is now disproportionately female in a society which doesn't necessarily value female independence? That's the first question. The second question is that, what the second issue is that when you look at discussions around what's going to happen with the Sinjar region, what is the future of the Sinjar region? What does reconciliation mean to the Yazidis? What does issues of accountability mean for the Yazidis? What you see in a lot of these meetings is that everyone in the meetings is male. And so you have this use of the women in the advocacy for genocide, the advocacy of things, but in the meetings where decisions may actually 
actually get made about how things will pan out, what people want, those meetings are still filled largely with male faces. Um, and oftentimes I found that even through the translation, it's the women who are speaking in their own language, but it's actually the men's voices that you hear in the room because mm. the translators have almost entirely been men. That's true. So. Um, and so that's something where you are hearing the words of sexual enslavement, you're hearing women's experiences, mm. but even when you're hearing those experiences, you're actually hearing them through the voice and through the lens of a man. And the other point I'd like to make is that Murad Ismail, who's the head of Yazda, was speaking once, and he said something that I think is really important to underline, which is this is a genocide which could still be successful. And I think people think because there is Yazidis out there that are speaking, mm. it's in the news, it's in the press, we're talking about something like, as in Rwanda, a hundred days of horror followed by like a reckoning. That's not the chronology of what's happening at the moment. We have a, an attack which happened on the 3rd of August 2014, and we've had a continuing since that time to 2017 and now, a situation where women and girls are being held in sexual slavery where young boys have been taken to ICE camps and have then been deployed on missions. Two Yazidi boys were killed when they were sent off by ISIS into the attack on Mosul where they were used as, I think, suicide bombers. And so this is a crime which is still continuing. But even for Yazidis who are safe, physically safe, the crime is still occurring through them because you have women who no longer want to bear children. You have people who no longer feel safe and who want to leave the area and then are spreading out. And I think this is one of the real concerns that Yazidis don't feel safe in the areas in which they are, which I think is fair enough, to be honest, mm -hmm. given that ISIS is still there, given that the international community has shown no real sign that they would come to rescue them, given that they're not rescuing them now. And you have Yazidis who are essentially trying to get out of Iraq and dispersing, which is a problem if your community relies on both parents to be Yazidi for the children to be Yazidi. And you're removing yourself also from your religious sites in a place where you've existed as a religious group for thousands of years. So only to underline that this is not a genocide which is necessarily an unsuccessful genocide. It is continuing. It's continuing really with no attempt to stop it as far as I can see. And the impact on the community is really testing the cohesiveness of the community. We talked about our work in the ICC. You mentioned that there's almost no way that there will be a referral to the ICC from the Security Council. Is there anything the ICC can do without a referral or any action that can be taken? Yes, I mean, the ICC, it's relevant because ISIS fighters, and I would say ISIS fighters, I mean men who are participating in this, come from all over the world. And so they will also come from states who are party to the Rome statute, maybe Belgium, maybe Tunisia, maybe the UK, maybe America. Oh, sorry, America's not party to the Rome statute. Sorry, that's very embarrassing for America. And so one of the planks moving forward, maybe Akila can speak to you a little bit more about what Global Justice Center is doing, is looking at whether it's possible to identify and bring foreign fighters from countries which are parties to the Rome Statute to justice before the ICC. Right. Just to very simply lay out ICC jurisdiction, there's a couple different ways that you can be prosecuted by the ICC. One is if your country has signed it. So it doesn't matter where you committed the crimes. If your country signed it, so you're from the UK, you're from Belgium, in that context, the ICC can have jurisdiction over you. Interestingly, the ICC is actually looking at crimes committed by the British in Iraq during the Iraq war in the early 2000s under this theory of jurisdiction. And so this is the same theory that we're talking about here with the foreign fighters. They can also be prosecuted if they have jurisdiction over a region, whether it's by Afghanistan signing the Rome Statute, for example. So there they might actually look at what US soldiers did because even though the U.S. hasn't signed it, U.S. activities and U.S. soldier activities happen in Afghanistan. Or they can look at it when a country refers itself to the ICC. So Palestine referred itself to the ICC. So there's different ways that you 
you can get ICC jurisdiction. In this context, what we're working on is we think that accountability is a very important deterrent. So the ability to commit crimes against the Yazidi, the ownership of slaves is actually a recruitment mechanism by ISIS. And so it's really important that proceedings to criminalize these acts and call them what they are and bring them to justice is a really important component of perhaps preventing what could be what Sarita was saying, a successful genocide. And so we think that this needs to come at different layers because the scale is enormous. So the ICC doesn't have jurisdiction generally over Iraq and Syria. However, they have jurisdiction over these foreign fighters. So they can look and see if they can begin a process of investigations of those at least who they have control over, which is exactly what they're doing in the context of British soldiers in Iraq. And then there's also very important other mechanisms that are coming into play now through the theory of universal jurisdiction. You've got some courts in countries like Germany. We're starting to look at genocide proceedings. You're also seeing some, and I think Sarita can speak about this a little bit more, but in Kurdistan itself, you've seen mm -hmm. some prosecutions. And so on our end, we're currently working on some advocacy with respect to jurisdiction on the ICC. But for us, it's a part of a larger picture because we think one of the most important things is that accountability has to begin now. And everyone who has expertise and the ability to do so shouldn't wait until the conflict is over, but they should start that process right now. And when it comes to the Yazidis, I think in particular, because the crime is so well orchestrated, so you can speak to, for example, women who were taken from different villages at slightly different times, taken to different holding sites, sold in different countries even, and they will tell you a remarkably similar story about what happened to them and the processes by which it happened. And so when it comes to accountability, the issue for achieving accountability is not evidential. It's not a case where there's not evidence out there, where we don't have the right facts, where we can't get sources of information. There's in fact almost too much information when it comes to the Yazidi genocide. The problem for accountability there are two. One, the forum in which you find accountability. Which is the court which is going to hear this case? And how is the jurisdiction of that court being triggered? And the second is, how are we getting the defendant into that courtroom? And so one of the ways forward would be to find foreign fighters who are returning to their home countries and then arresting them and trying them for genocide and other crimes against the Yazidi as well as other crimes against many other groups during the time they were with ISIS. Another way that people are looking at it is trying to find either a specially formulated court that is created for those crimes, whether in the Kurdish regions, for example, or in a regional court. And a third way is looking at universal jurisdiction cases in national courts, which is, in fact, when it comes to accountability for Syria generally, is the way most people are moving forward, is to try and find national prosecution services who have identified possible perpetrators, alleged perpetrators who are in their country, whether they're nationals of that country or not, and putting them for trial on crimes being committed. Part of that is going to be discussing prosecutorial strategy and this impulse not to charge certain offences as genocide, to rely more on war crimes and crimes against humanity. But even beyond that, actually even beyond the stage of trying to decide which crime to prosecute, if you have a defendant and you have a court, one of the biggest pullbacks has been the tendency of courts to prosecute ISIS fighters for terrorism offences, rather from the crimes they committed while they're there. So there are continual discussions about foreign fighters from ISIS who are actually charged with belonging to a terrorist group or engaging in terrorism, but not with the underlying crimes. And I think that's partly because it's an easier case to make, and partly because there isn't necessarily understanding of the people prosecuting of the importance of recognizing the crimes 
that are being committed as those crimes, and in particular genocide as genocide, of saying, like, we recognize formally that there has been an attempt to destroy your entire group. This attempt has rises to the level where we believe the crime of genocide is committed and we are charging on that basis. What we are seeing is instead a, a use of really terrorism indictments rather than indictments for international crimes, mm -hmm. which has been problematic. But where we're seeing spots of accountability has been more in the national courts. Mm -hmm. But I think on all fronts, people will continue wherever they find someone who can possibly be indicted in a court that will take the case. Didn't uh, Germany just issue an arrest warrant for... Yeah. Germany and Sweden have been some of the more active jurisdictions. But I think national prosecutors are working really hard. Mm -hmm. I think it's really difficult if you're a national prosecutor with limited resources to start trying cases. So there's also a whole group of people that are trying to marry up understandings of what happens in the conflict with the people who have the jurisdiction to try it. Mm -hmm. So do you have any final thoughts? Yes, yes. I want to say yes. one thing. Yes. What we've seen here, Yazidi women are joining Syrian Kurdish forces and independent Yazidi militia. Some women, including women who have been sexually enslaved and have been brought back, are essentially taking up arms and being trained. Which, on one hand, you know, they're a traumatized community and then you're arming them and sending off, off into war. It's not necessarily ideal. But on the other hand, it really changes the way in which women can be seen in the community, right? Because in the Yazidi community, historically, they live in a patriarchal region anyway. They themselves are fairly patriarchal, especially in their rural areas. The women are really, they leave school early and they get married early and they have kids early. It's not universally true, but it's largely true. And now you have this issue where you have a young Yazidi girl, Nadia Murad, going all over the world speaking, being kind of championed by her people, seeing women being much more vocal about what they want and what they don't want. But now you're actually also seeing Yazidi women going off to fight and participating in battles to retrieve Sinjar. The question of whether that actually survives, if we move to a post-genocidal world for the Yazidis where they're in a place of some stability and certainty, whether those advantages limited as they are, I'm going to hesitate to call them advantages, but whether those openings for women which exist now will continue is going to be a question. And we've talked mostly about the Yazidi in the mm. context of ISIS-controlled territory, but you actually have a large volume of women who are living under ISIS-controlled territory. It's a subject for another day. But there is another system of those women who are similarly being commodified and treated as wives and as mothers. There's an entire ideology that is not about the Yazidi, but that is core to ISIS that revolves around women solely existing for the purpose of being wives and mothers. And it's not just women who are already in ISIS controlled areas who are suffering through this. There are families that are giving women to ISIS, but there's also women who are traveling into ISIS-controlled territory through mm. a different set of propaganda and primarily to become wives, to become jihadi wives or whatever you want to call them. And so there is a core of misogyny that goes far beyond the treatment of the Yazidi within day-to-day -day life in ISIS territory yeah. as well. So we just mentioned how women being uncovered is a red flag for them being able to escape, but it also means that there's very strict dress yeah. codes and codes of where women can be, how they can act, who they can mm -hmm. interact with. Yes. And I think that all of that ties together with, of course, the larger context. The commission is also, I mean, again, we're talking about diseases here, but there's a lot of information about, for example, forced marriages of yes. Sunni women, women whose husbands have died, being told they need immediately to remarry. But then across the conflict, I mean, ISIS is a very peculiar group with a peculiar ideology and it deserves a specific examination. But, you know, there's a treatment of women that involves sexual violence across the conflict as a whole 
including, you know, violence against women in government prisons, arrest and detention of females in order to prompt male relatives to surrender, the impact of sieges on, on women and children in particular, and then, of course, treatment of women in various armed groups. So wars always impact on people differently. And in general, I think when it comes to accountability for wars, we find it easier to label and understand how wars impact on men, given that war is a social fact that is created and perpetrated by men and who many of the victims are in fact men. It's a much more complex picture when we speak about gender across across the conflict. But when I was in Doha doing a lot of the interviews, I actually took with me Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale, which is what I had read, you know, when I was 15, 16, I had read continually since that time. And one of the things that I really remarked about is how close the understanding of how women's roles are in society to what ISIS is doing are replicated in the Handmaid's Tale because of course in the Handmaid's Tale the victim you look at is the handmaiden who is essentially passed around from men to men in order to impregnate her in a world where there have been declining births but equally you have the wife who's dressed in blue who is in her own way a victim and I think that's very much similar to what we see in a nice controlled territory where you have these wives who may be living in the houses sometimes involved in the abuse of these easy girls in terms of beating and forcing them to cook and to clean and take care of children but who are women who are trapped in a world which is made for and specifically designed for men who adhere to the ideology of that world. We have to remember that a lot of the ISIS fighters weren't necessarily from Syria and Iraq. You had fighters who grew up in nightclubs in Portsmouth or who were hanging out in the beaches of southern France. I think we have to ask ourselves, what is it that causes groups of young men, and I think the continued use of fighters disguises the fact that these are all men, to go from a country where you think women are being largely respected to into, into ISIS-controlled series of Iraq and engage in this kind of conduct, to believe that this is something that is a positive thing to do, to live every day with immense human suffering that they must see the Yazidi children, women and children bear. And I think the question that deserves a lot of thought is, what is it about the way that people understand women, how they should be treated, how they can be objectified, that provides a bedrock that when you move into a society that has territorial control, that has physical control of people, that you have an authority who is above you saying, this is acceptable, that something within you agrees with that without question. And I don't think it's enough to simply blame the long-standing persecution of the Yazidis, although it's important and it's relevant, because you had situations where people joined in who weren't ISIS, but you also had a large number of families, including Muslim families, who helped rescue rescue Yazidis as well. I think we have to talk about how women are seen in society in general. And there is an underlying thread of misogyny and a willingness to not view women as people, to view women as objects that are there for male pleasure and the male gaze. And that understanding, I think, exists everywhere. And I think ISIS takes it to a horrifying extreme. But I think it's a relevant question when you have so many people from foreign fighters from all over the world who are engaging in this conduct. To think about why it is that men growing up all over the world can all participate in this conduct once you have someone in authority above you saying it's acceptable. Thank you so much to Sarita for joining us and thank you to our listeners. Please rate and review us on iTunes and please join us next week for more discussions on international law.